If you open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and since it's been uh, two weeks since we've been uh, in Romans 9, I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. So that's our text, and you can leave that up and when we get to verse 24, but if you have your Bible, your phone, whatever it might be, I encourage you to uh, turn to Romans chapter 9 because I think it's important for us to catch the context and to see that Paul is he's... Uh, in Romans chapter 9, he's explaining God's ways in the world and the right of God to be God. There's just a, Romans 9 is a, is a fantastic, terrifying in some ways, but awe-inspiring, we could say that, vision of God uh, as he sovereignly goes about his work of justice and grace. Um, no unfaithfulness, justice and grace. And we're going to see that this morning as well. Let's begin at verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So he's dealing with the issue of why aren't Jews coming to faith by, in, in large part? And his answer is, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father uh, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we then say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And to her and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, these are, these are holy and heavy words. And I pray, Lord, that you would just take away all flippancy of mind and heart this morning, that we could hear them and see the glory of God in them and cherish your, your mercy. Remember your justice. Respond to you as, as you really are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking you, do you have a favorite psalm? If I ask you, what's your favorite psalm? Is there any that come to mind? Uh, undoubtedly, some of you would say Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. That's a, that's a great psalm. But whatever it is, um, I think we recognize that the psalms have had been a tremendous source of encouragement for God's saints throughout the ages. They're such an incredible comfort, particularly in times of trial or grief. Aren't you glad to know when uh, life seems to be crashing down around you, that God is a refuge and a strength, and that the Lord is your shepherd. Those are incredibly precious truths. But what if I told you this morning that actually those psalms don't belong to you? What if I showed you that you really don't have any right to use those words for your comfort because they're not addressed to you? They're not intended for you. They were written for God's covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, the Jews. And you are a Gentile. And that, and that means that no matter how much wishful thinking you, you might wrap around this, the fact remains that the Lord is, is not actually your shepherd and, and God has not promised to be your refuge. And the reason is, is, is a very simple reason, because you're not a member of the covenant people, and so you don't have any right to covenant promises. We understand what, how membership works. Uh, I remember before we had a Costco membership, hearing these great stories of this, of this place, land flown with milk and honey, and we, but we, <clears throat> we couldn't get in. Uh, every time I walk past Delta Sky Lounge, I look longingly and at the, at the people who are making their way in. They, they get to enter in. Uh, but I can't go there. I'm not a member. We recognize what, that membership matters, and, and membership matters in the Bible too. We just take it for granted, you see, that we can read the Psalms and apply them to ourselves. But, but on what basis can you 
say that? On what basis is that true? You see, the issue that Paul is dealing with here in Romans chapter 9 is not some abstract theological debate. It's intensely personal and relevant. On what factual basis can you, a Gentile, claim the Jewish scriptures as God's word to you? What gives you the right as a Gentile to claim the Jewish Lord as your shepherd? You see, the the Jews in Paul's day were absolutely convinced you had no right whatsoever. No right at all. Are they wrong? That's the issue that's on the table. Well, in the book of Romans, Paul is addressing that that issue definitively as, as from the really very beginning of the book, he's been explaining that there's no difference before God when it comes to salvation between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first uh, three chapters. But in the same way that, that uh, all have sinned against God and all rightly deserve condemnation, the, the wonder of the gospel is that, that God being rich in mercy is has showed his love, and that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, not by a righteousness of their own, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them. That's the gospel message. Jesus is not just a a Messiah for Jews. He's a Savior for sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike, sinners from every tongue and tribe and nation. There's infinite mercy in, in God for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. There's an old hymn that I've never grown up singing, but I love, the, I love the lyrics. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. That's the gospel. The love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind. And the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. This morning, I just have two points. We're going to look first at the mercy, the kindness of God. And then secondly, we're going to look at the reality of the judgment of God. As we see God at work in the world. So, as verse 22 really is where we need to start. As Paul is revealing God's sovereign ways in the world. Why, is, uh, why are things happening as they are? Why, is, um, why are the Jews not coming to faith? Why are the Gentiles coming to faith? Why does God allow wickedness in this world to continue? Why doesn't he bring judgment? Uh, and Paul says in verse 22, God is enduring with much patience. Think of that word enduring. God isn't flippant about the evil in the world. He's not a stoic deity. He endures Every lying tongue, every sexually immoral act and thought, every hateful word, every violent act, he endures day after day, year after year. God endures it. He doesn't bring judgment. Not now. Why not? 
Well, Paul says, because God's desires to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That the delay of judgment is a delay of grace. It's a delay of mercy. God's great work is his gracious work. The underlying reason why God is allowing this wicked world to continue to roll on is, is his ultimate desire and purpose to magnify the glory of his grace. So that's big picture what God is doing. And, and Paul exalts in the grace in the, of God in the way that God is magnifying his glory through Jesus Christ, the Savior for sinners. But, but what Paul delights in, the Jews find offensive, deeply offensive. Because in, in their mind, they're convinced that this gospel of grace actually violates the Old Testament scripture. Uh, when Paul goes around talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles both needing grace alike, well, that just doesn't, it's not what they read in their Bible. You see, they're not bigots. But when they read their Old Testament Bible, they see clearly that God made a covenant with Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. God did not make a covenant with the Philistines. He did not make a covenant with the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He destroyed them. Didn't make a covenant with the Romans. Did not make a covenant with the Greeks. Made a covenant with Abraham. Just open your Bible and read it. It's right there. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. So, so, when Paul is talking about Gentiles as though they are members of the covenant, well, they, they, it's just not what they're reading in their Bible. If you want to be a member of the covenant community, you have to become a Jew. You have to uh, take on the Jewish religion and Jewish laws and Jewish customs. The path to heaven is a Jewish path. And Paul is trampling all over that when he's talking about the gospel of God's mercy for Gentiles. Well, Paul had responded earlier in chapter 9, as we read, by pointing that, that, that the Jews had misunderstood the nature of the covenant in itself, that, that God did not make a covenant with every physical descendant of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. One was a member of the covenant, the other wasn't. Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. One was a member of the covenant, one wasn't. And so God reserves the right to, to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. He's not bound by ethnicity. So that's the first thing, that they'd misunderstood the nature of the covenant itself. But, but now Paul moves the argument one step further to show that though God has, yes, worked redemptively through Abraham and through the Israelites. Theirs is the patriarchs. There's the law, the promises, the glory. He's, he's worked redemptively through the Israelites, but his, his saving purpose from the beginning has included Jews and Gentiles. That's verse 24. Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, we're, we are familiar and comfortable with the idea of Gentiles being included in God's saving purpose. But in Paul's Jewish context, this is incredibly offensive. It is a 
frontal assault on the cherished Jewish conviction that they and they alone are the people of God. This is their assurance. This is their confidence before God. This is their righteousness. It's their pride and joy. They are Abraham's descendants. And Paul is blasting away at that foundation of confidence. He's destroying their ground of assurance. He's destroying their righteousness. The idea of God showing mercy to Gentiles as Gentiles. Well, that is a despicably offensive doctrine for a Jew. It's a hate crime, right, in today's language, against Jews. So the question is, why does Paul insist on beating this drum? He just doesn't let up. Why keep pounding on this highly offensive, emotionally charged issue? Why not just let it go? Let them believe what they want to believe. Well, the reason is because as long as they, the Jews, trust in their ethnicity, or they trust in their religious practice, as long as people trust in anything other than the atoning blood of Jesus Christ to make them right with God, they are not saved. And Paul dearly wants them to be saved. He said that at the beginning of Romans chapter 9. He says it again at the beginning of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's why he keeps bringing it up. He wants them to, to be saved. Just a quick aside, why do Christians insist on trying to convert Muslims and, and Mormons and, and Hindus? I mean, why not just let them be? Let them believe what they want to believe. Why, why bother going to faraway tribes to evangelize them? They have their own tribal religions that, have, you know, that, that they've been observing for centuries, maybe millennium. Why would we bother with that? Why disturb them? And the answer is because we want them to be saved. If you don't want them to be saved, of course there's no reason to go. You're just a meddler. But you see, we actually believe that the God of the Bible is the living, true, only God. That's what we believe on the basis of God's word. We believe that he made this world very, very good. And that he made men and women in his own image. And for his glory, that they might know him and worship him. And we believe that, that through Adam, this, uh, there was great evil brought into the world, and the, and the world was brought under a curse so that people are deceived. They're in the darkness. They're blind. They can't see. They don't understand the spiritual things of God. And they're in rebellion against God. And, and there's a, a day of judgment coming that every person who lives is going to stand before the God who created them. And given an answer, give an account for their life. And, and if, if, if they have not been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, if they have not been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they are headed for an eternity of condemnation and misery in hell. We believe that because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus taught. There's no other way to be saved, you see, except through Jesus. And we want people to be saved. So Paul wants, my heart's desire is that they might be saved, but as long as they're trusting in their ethnic identity, in their moral mosaic code, 
They're lost. And they can't be saved as long as they stay there. So to help the Jews understand the ways of God and the way of salvation, Paul opens his Bible. What do the scriptures say? Whom does the Lord call? Does he call Jews alone or Gentiles as well? And Paul just let's, says, let's just open our Bibles to the prophet Hosea. Remember Hosea? Hosea was a prophet of God about 750 years before Christ. Hosea was in, given an incredibly difficult task. He was, he was commanded by God to go marry Gomer, a, a prostitute, and to have children with her. And he did. But, but then other children came along, and, and uh, Hosea had no confidence at all that they were his children. And so he gave them names like Lo-Ami, not my people. Lo Ruamah, no mercy. And that was God's message to Israel, that God was saying to Israel, because of their sin, you are not my people, and I will not have mercy on you. But God did not stay there. God follows up with a promise to restore, and Paul quotes from Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now Paul takes that promise, spoken through Hosea to the Jews, 750 years ago, and applies it to the current Gentile situation. F.F. F. Bruce says, what Paul does here is to take this promise and extract from it a principle of divine action which in his day was reproducing itself on a worldwide scale. Great numbers of Gentiles who had never been the people of God, they were low ami, not my people. They had no claim on his covenant mercy, but were coming to be enrolled among his people and acknowledge the sons of the living God. That's the New Testament Gentile mission. So Jesus says, you go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the Gentile mission. That's what God is doing in the New Testament age. He is gathering in all those whom he has called, both among Jews and Gentiles. And, and this is the reason, though we are Gentiles, this is the reason we can claim the Psalms as our own. God has had mercy on us. Somewhere in our life, God showed his kindness. Maybe when I think about God's kindness to me, it, it goes back at least to my grandfather, who shows up in America 19 years old back the turn of the 20th century, ends up in Chicago, knows nothing of Christ, but lonely, only knows Dutch, and somebody directs him to the Dutch Reformed church down the street because they all talk Dutch over there. And so he goes and, and hears the gospel Sunday after Sunday and six months later he's converted. And grandpa then marries a, a Christian woman, young woman, and Gertie, and they have 11 kids and they speak, preach the gospel to those kids by their life and by their words and those children all come to faith. And then they pass that gospel down to their kids and, and I'm one of those kids. And you have, many of you have stories like that, but, but for some of you, you're the first generation. Some of you were just living your life lost and, and 
never really had a relationship with Jesus Christ at all until someone talked to you, Matt Maloli, someone talked to him in the parking lot of Meyer and told him the gospel. He came to believe it. And some of you, that's your story. But, but however it happened, friends, at some point, God intervened, intersected in your life in his mercy, and he called you to himself. Why? Why, when, when, when the world is full of people who are just wandering around today in spiritual darkness and blindness, why did he call you? And, and the answer is just because he determined to. And yet because God did, you see, then you've become sons of the living God and you can take then the Psalms and claim them. You can say with David in Psalm 42, oh God, you are my God. And earnestly, I seek you. My soul longs for you. The Psalms become your song. Because you see, those who have the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. And by the mercy and the kindness of God, this Bible, the Old Testament and New, has become, it's become your Bible, and God has become your God. You are his people. And that's the incredible kindness of God. And, and we should just be in awe of it. Just complete, utter awe. I was talking on an airplane drive, flying out to... Uh, San Diego this week to a, a lady who's grew up in a uh, sort of a cultic Catholic home and knows the language, but because of her sort of cultic Catholic upbringing, wants nothing to do with religion. About my age, she's a professor, written some books, very kind, very closed to the gospel. Why am I sitting in my seat and she's sitting in her seat? The kindness of God. The kindness of God. It should make us tremble. Paul also here wants us to see the judgment of God. Because he moves directly into this wonderful story of God's grace to the truth of what God is doing with Israel. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You see, once again, Paul uses the Bible, Old Testament scripture, to explain what's happening. Many Jews are being converted. Most Jews are rejecting the gospel. Mercy and kindness is being shown to some. Judgment is being shown to others. Why are the Jews rejecting Christ in such vast numbers? And Paul says, because, because God said through Isaiah that only a remnant will be saved, and the Lord is carrying out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You see, remember what God told Israel way back. He said, if you, I'm making this covenant with you, and if you keep covenant, if you obey me, if you love me and serve me, Trust in me. I will pour out showers of blessings upon you. But if you deny me, if you go whoring after other gods, if you serve these false idols, if you stop submitting to my will and to my word, if you will not listen to my prophets, then I will judge you. And Paul says that's exactly what's happening. The unbelief of the Jews was not a tragic accident. It is 
the terrifying reality of God's judgment being brought to bear. How does Paul know that? Well, he knows it because that's what the scriptures say. He's not making it up. He's not guessing. And so Paul quotes again from Isaiah 1 verse 29, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, Paul just wants the people, Jews and Gentiles of his day alike to understand that the Jews are suffering under God's judgment. And the reason that, that any were coming to faith is because God has determined to, to preserve a remnant. He's not going to make them like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not going to destroy them completely like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. How many survivors were there in Sodom and Gomorrah? None. And God is not going to do that. But the, but the reason they're not going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah is because God was merciful and faithful to preserve a remnant. But that means that the, that the, the unbelief of the Jews that, that was so heartbreaking to Paul was not a tragic accident, not a, just a, a, a tragic mistake on their part. It is actually God acting in judgment as he said he would. God is doing something in Jewish unbelief. He's judging them. And it's, it's awful. It's perfectly just. It's exactly what he had promised, but it's terrifying. Because men and women and boys and girls who were Jews were living their life rejecting the Christ and enter into eternity without him. As God's just response to sin. You know, the fascinating thing about this is that the Jewish people never believed it could happen. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn his people of the coming judgment, and they couldn't hear it. What did they do with the prophets? They stoned them. They just couldn't bring themselves to believe that God would ever actually bring judgment upon them. Why couldn't they believe it? Well, it just, it just, they didn't take God seriously. They didn't believe that he would actually carry through on it. And even when the Son of God came and said the same thing, that, that you must repent and believe or, or judgment will come, they did not take the Son of God at his word. They crucified him. They, couldn't, they just could not believe that God would judge them. They were Jews. They were Abraham's children. God would never judge them until he did. And even when he did and as he did, they didn't realize it. They, they were so gripped in their unbelief and blindness that, that they didn't even understand that their rejection of Christ was actually God's divine judgment on them. I mean, if you're standing in Paul's shoes and you're looking around and you're seeing these people that you love en masse reject Christ and you realize that it's because God in his sovereign justice is, is bringing judgment upon them, wouldn't your heart be broken? Wouldn't you tremble? At the, at the severity of what's happening? 
I can't help but see a parallel in our own day. There, there are so many people celebrating the descending spiritual darkness in our society. People celebrate their freedom to rebel against God. They, they fight for their freedom to kill their unborn babies. Their freedom to engage in debauchery, to boast in homosexuality. They gleefully trample over God's good creation of man and woman and, and happily embrace whatever lies the devil puts before them. And it never occurs to them that they are not the primary actors in their rebellion and their unbelief. They're not the primary actors. God is. God is. That's Romans 1. God hands people over. And so what people celebrate as freedom is actually divine judgment. That is such a sobering thought. And unless God intervenes, they will experience that judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. But lest we point our fingers only at the wickedness out there, we need to remember that the words of Isaiah and Hosea and all the prophets were addressed not out there, they were addressed to God's people. Right here. You see, the prophet's words are a sober reminder of our own tendency to sin, to rebel, to delight in what is evil, to do what is wrong. And every one of us would be rebels still if God had not intervened in our life, if God had not opened up his heart to show grace and kindness and mercy to us. And if God would remove his hand, we would move immediately back into our rebellion and sin, and we would become like Sodom and Gomorrah unless God would, would preserve us. And so if you stand in grace today, it's only, only because of God. And so let's, we just need to be humble, be deeply, profoundly thankful. You see, friends, this text, this whole chapter 9, it's, just, it's meant to make us awake and aware to the sovereign engagement of God in this world and in our life. All through this chapter, Paul's been presenting a bracing vision of, a, of God as he is, not the God we like to imagine him to be, but God as he actually is, a God who is gloriously, terrifyingly sovereign and who insists on his right to act according to his own free will, and a God who is full of mercy, but of willing, a God who is also willing to judge. Romans 9 should just make us realize this is not a God to be trifled with. It's not, it's not a God to take for granted. His grace and his mercy have a weight to them. There's a, there's a glory and a holiness to them that, that, that needs to be responded to with, with seriousness. Paul presses this point home. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 11. But in chapter 11, 22, listen to what Paul says. He says, consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Kindness and sternness. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Paul's just saying, this is, this is nothing to take lightly. If God has engaged you in his kindness, don't take it for granted. 
Don't, don't trifle with it. Consider it. Consider the kindness of God and consider the sternness of God. He judged his people, the Jews, and, and yet was willing to pour out his grace and mercy upon you, a Gentile. They got justice, you got grace. And for no other reason than God's own eternal counsel. Let that, let that move you to, to worship, to praise, to thanksgiving, to obedience, to love. Let that become the great reality in your life that forms everything else in your life. So, so that we are dealing in truth with God as he is and our prayers are both sober and full of gratitude. And that, and that we're, as we walk along this world, realizing that holiness matters because God matters and because grace matters. And that, and that evangelism matters because judgment matters. And people are lost, and we want them to be saved. This is, friends, this is a day of grace, as God has continued to pour out his mercy to all who call on his name. My closing question to you just would be, have you, are you, do you? Is that your prayer? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, I want to I know Jesus. Forgive me for my sin. Make me like Christ. Save me from my sin. Make me a son. Make me a daughter of the living God. God promises to hear and answer that prayer. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, these are sober things, serious things, glorious things. And we just pray, Father, don't let us wander in spiritual apathy and darkness. Lord, some of us here this morning maybe have never taken seriously who you actually are or your ways. We've never taken seriously, Lord, your promise to judge those who live in their sin. Maybe we've trusted in our religion, in our morality, our upbringing, our intentions, but we've never come to Jesus Christ. Father, I just pray that today you would show us the great danger that we're in and that, Lord, today people would turn to Jesus Christ in truth. And Lord, for those of us who have believed by your grace and experienced your kindness, but if we've forgotten the kindness of God, I, oh Lord, I, I just pray that your word would open our eyes again and that we would continue in your kindness as we live by grace and in faith, as we seek more and more to know you and to love you, trusting in you. Oh, Lord God, please, don't let us be people who trifle with the things of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.